This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Back in 1989, a biologist published a report about an insect called Micronetta shotzi, the lesser water boatman, an insect that, relative to its size, may be the loudest animal in the world. The scientist wrote, and here I quote, The sound production of Micronetta involved the rubbing of a rigid area of the basal processus on the right paramere, pars stridens, against one of the two ridges, plectrum, located near the median edge inside the pocket formed by the left lobe of the eighth segment. Okay, you guys still awake? Look, I don't begrudge scientists for writing like scientists, but science doesn't have to be stodgy. It can be fun. It can be irreverent. It, it can be gross. And if you tell people that the rapid and really, really noisy series of chirps they would hear if they were standing next to just about any pond in Europe are in fact the result of an insect that is rubbing its penis against its ribbed belly, well, they tend to wake up and pay attention. But scientists are notorious for making things complicated that maybe aren't quite so complicated for writing this way, for talking this way. This is a way that, for a lot of us, it, it just amounts to gibberish. And of course, they're not alone. Just about every professional group in the world has its own jargon. But communications researcher Hilary Shulman says that inside language tells people that they don't belong. And at a time in which we need good science more than ever before, that's not a good thing. Her recent research, published in Public Understanding of Science, suggests that jargon is a significant barrier to effective communication. Another recent study looks at jargon and politics. It had similar conclusions, and we'll talk about that too. Hilary Shulman, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So, Hilary, it, it seems commonsensical that we should strive to speak in the simplest way possible, but... Well, nobody really does that, right? In academia, in the military, in the sports world, every group has its own language. Why Why does that happen? Why do we evolve in these professional groups and social groups to have jargon? Well, I think when you think about it, it makes perfect sense. You're talking to people in your in-group every day. You're exposed to the same types of things. You have similar interests. And over time, it becomes a really convenient, efficient, and precise shorthand to just say exactly what you mean to your other in-group members. So it's totally natural, and it evolves the more time you spend with people, particularly in a specific context. And this signals in some way belonging, right? I mean, it's almost like saying I love you to somebody in your group, right? It's a used language that they can understand and you can understand and maybe other people can't understand. You know, this is something I've been thinking about, and I've actually kind of gone back and forth. I think in some ways it signals belonging, but I also think in a lot of ways it's just we become so used to this, and our daily life or the life we spend in these contexts, we just assume knowledge that I'm not sure how much we actually think about it when we leave these groups, but I think it does signal certainly like mutual understanding. And that's, I mean, that's probably a good thing, right? There's nothing like inherently wrong with jargon. But the problem is it also impacts people's ability to grasp concepts. Exactly. 
And I think that's the problem is that like there is good for jargon. But to your previous question about like this being a love letter, like I don't know if it's registering to the people who want it to register. But what it's certainly doing is telling a whole bunch of people on the peripheral you know, the peripheral levels that, like, you don't belong or this isn't a conversation for you. And I think that's the conversation in general that we should be having. I'm wondering how, how you decided you wanted to study this area of human communication. What drew you into asking questions about jargon? So <laughs> this all started, I'm a product of Illinois public education, and uh, in the state of Illinois, in order to graduate high school, you need to pass a constitution test, like a U.S. constitution test. And so they interrupt you during your, like, history studies, I think your junior year, and they teach you about, like, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and Supreme Court cases and all sorts of other things. And this was my first exposure to politics. And after taking this test and being exposed to this, I was certain. I was like, oh, do you like politics? I was like, I don't at all. Like, I'm bad at it. I don't understand it. And I think it's actually quite boring. And then when I went to college, I started getting exposed to all these people having these really natural political discussions. I went to school at uh, Wisconsin-Madison, so in a capital. And people were having these conversations. And I was like, oh, this is what politics is about. Like, why don't <laughs> Why don't people talk about it like that? It's so much more interesting. And that always stuck with me and turned into what I want to study, how to get people excited about things that seem complicated or boring. Okay, and this is really interesting because you thought you weren't interested in politics, and then you realized you were interested in politics, and you actually started this line of inquiry about jargon in politics Explain how the basic study design of, of studying how jargon impacts people's understanding, how, how does that work? How do you study that? So it all started with basically under the guise of a public opinion questionnaire, where you basically just tell participants like, hey, I want to know about your political attitudes. And then in one instance, you ask them about politics in a complicated way, like, tell me how you feel about Citizens United or entitlement reform, you know, these real jargony words, and just give me your opinion. Now, in actuality, we didn't care at all about their opinion, but afterwards we did ask, like, do you like politics? Are you interested in politics? Are you good at politics, so to speak? And they were reporting, like, in the difficult language condition or the political jargon condition, like, no, I'm not that interested, I'm not very good at it, and I don't like it. This is fascinating. Like just just by reading a questionnaire in jargony terms, when at the mm -hmm. end they were asked if they were good at something or interesting or something or even liked something, there was a, a significant effect in how it made them feel about whether they were good at something. Yes. And like these effects are big. So in the social sciences, we're not very accustomed to big findings, you know, as the way maybe ordinary people would think about them because there's so much going on in our social world that the effect of any one like question shouldn't matter much. But these effects are actually quite big in predicting people's attitudes towards politics or their predispositions towards politics in general, which was really exciting 
from my perspective. And what you found in the political arena is that people who are confronted with complex language, is it fair to say they, they tune out pretty quickly? Mm-hmm. And, and Absolutely. The, and they report less interest in the subject. Yeah, less interest and less efficacy, which is like confidence in your ability to learn the information, perceived knowledge. So, you know, I'm not really a politics person. They were more likely to say, I don't know, you know, to political questions, which was interesting. So what so, do you think yeah. is happening in their brains when this is happening? What the research in social psychology would say is that when we encounter information, we either process it easily or with some difficulty. And basically, the ease or difficulty with which we process information tells us something about ourselves. And one thing it tells us is that when things are easy, we kind of infer that it's because we've seen it before or it's familiar or that's kind of the type of person we are. And when things are difficult, we think it's unfamiliar, risky, or maybe just kind of not our thing. And so that's the process that I was thinking about kind of strategically uh, manipulating with this wording, the jargon or no jargon conditions. And it worked. And so, and so people are just kind of concluding because the jargon is a little inaccessible at front, instead of thinking like this is something that I could be interested in, it's like flipping a switch in their brain that says this is not my thing. Exactly. And I think that flip the switch is a really good metaphor because a lot of this is really unconscious. If I were to tell people beforehand, and there's research that's done this, is that like these are really hard questions. Or there's a lot of jargon in these questions, so don't beat yourself up about this. A lot of people don't understand it. All of these effects would go away because somebody would have an external justification for why it's hard. But without that external justification, people go totally internal and are like, well, I guess this just isn't for me. Light switch. So we've been talking about the effect on people when they're exposed to political jargon so far. You moved from there to science. That's the subject of the latest study. And you found similar effects there. Almost identical. I mean, we, we did a few things that were different. So rather than ask people, like, opinion questions about technology or science, we exposed them to really short, only like three or four sentence paragraphs about some emerging science topics. I've actually got some of the language from the robot surgeon one. One of the sentences read, this system works because of AI integration through motion scaling and tremor reduction. And then the other sentence, which is the sort of similar sentence, but in less jargony way is this system works because of programming that makes the robots movements more precise and less shaky. And, (laughs) and you saw a big effect on, cognition between the groups that read the first version of this and the second version. Yeah, very big. And you said it it was very similar to the thing that you were seeing in politics. And you've done this with with lots of subjects in politics and lots of subjects in science. Yeah, and then this finding seems to be replicating. It seems to be a pretty robust effect. Um, And people, again, are reporting after exposure to the information with jargon compared to the no jargon condition, people are saying, 
I'm not a science person. So you've done this with politics and science. Has there been thought or efforts moving toward like doing it in another area to see if these findings continue to hold up? I mean, like I imagine you could do this with sports or you could do this with military stuff. You could do this with a whole bunch of things. I think so. The other two areas, and this isn't published yet, but is um, GMOs and fracking. We've done as well, and the findings totally replicate. So people who are exposed to language that is complicated when they are exposed to GMOs or exposed to information about GMOs are more likely to say, that's not my thing, I'm not interested in it, rather than have an opinion one way or the other. Exactly. And also they're less persuaded. So in that one, we were a little interested in persuasion Mm. and we saw less message consistent effects. So they weren't agreeing with the recommendations, the information they read in the complicated condition, but in the no complicated or the easy condition, they subscribed to whatever we told them about GMOs and fracking. They're like, sounds good. Oh, wow. Wow. So I think one of the things that's important in your findings is that it's not enough to just define jargony terms for people and then just go on using them. In fact, according to your research, defining the terms doesn't help at all. It has no effect. No effect. So we did, one of my grad students, or two of my grad students who are co-authors on this paper, did an excellent job scouring the internet for these articles or for these terms. And we actually got a lot of these terms from Wired, or in some cases, the AARP (laughs) website. (laughs) And what we saw that they do is that when there's a complicated term, they'll hyperlink it. You know what I'm talking about? So so you can can click click on on it to get a definite, right. More information. So we kind of copied that approach and basically said, if you don't know what a term means and it's underlined, you could hover your mouse over the term and we'll give you the definition thinking that if people were aware that this is hard text, I don't know what it means, well, here you go. Here's the definition, if you're so motivated. And very few people, A, took advantage of this option, and B, just the opportunity or the availability of this option didn't change anything that we saw. So this seems to be, to your point, a light switch, not really a conscious engagement with the information. Well, you know, I think this makes, I mean, quite a bit of sense, really, because even though I think that's a really common way to allow people to take agency and authority for collecting more information when they need it, it also does something to the communications process. It breaks the process. A sentence, every sentence is a miniature story. And if people have to stop in the middle of the sentence to understand a concept, then the story is broken up. Agreed. And when you're thinking of these topics like science or health or politics that already have such a big barrier to entry, adding language and jargon as another means like maybe people just will stop reading after the first sentence. Yeah. And that I guess that's the danger, right? That people will just disengage altogether. And well, we live in a world where that's easier than ever. Yeah. Why not? There's a million things to read. You know, this one is hard and making me feel bad. So I'm going to pick something else. Wow. So now you're not saying, at least I don't gather that you're saying, that journal studies need to be written for a lay audience, right? No, not necessarily. 
and in fact, before the program, um, when we were corresponding, you said that, that this whole process has made you more aware of the jargon in in your own writing, including in your own in your own studies. And it was all fair, all fair. So the study we should say is called "Jargon as a Barrier to Effective Science Communication," and I'm I'm like I'm great at that point. And then there's a colon because <laughs> every study needs a colon, and it's evidence from metacognition. <laughs> And like, let's go there. What is metacognition? Well, I'll start by saying this is one of my better titles, (laughs) (laughs) my better and shorter titles. Metacognition is thinking about our thinking. Thinking. Okay. All right. But and I guess I I mean, like, I guess that would work. (laughs) Evidence from thinking about our. I don't know. Well, what are you doing? What is changing for you as you have thought about this and become more conscientious of your own jargon? Well, it's a good question because there's competing factors. Like on the one hand, I want to publish in academic journals and I want to tell my community of scholars, like, I fit in. Look at all the great words I use, (laughs) you know, like metacognition. But then alternatively, and I think really encouragingly, there's an open science movement and the public is starting to become more engaged with research coming out of universities and our university PR departments doing a great job promoting this stuff. And what good is this knowledge if it never gets out of the ivory tower? So I'm conflicted because I need to and want to publish and speak to my peers, but it's also really important and really intellectually interesting for me, too, to come outside my bubble and see what people have to say about the topic and their experiences. So that's not a great answer to your question, but it's something that I'm definitely a lot more self-conscious about. Yeah. So, well, and maybe that's the start. I mean, so we know what the problem is, right? Jargon makes people less interested in things that they might otherwise be interested in. How, Mm -hmm. how do you think we keep that from happening? Because man, it really doesn't take long before people who are inside of a group seem to stop being aware that they're even communicating in jargon. I mean, yeah, I think you're right. And something that I've been thinking about as I've been asked to reflect on this paper, and it goes back to something you asked me about earlier, about the good, the feelings of in-group identity and solidarity when we speak the same language. And I'm trying to think about my own personal experience, when I hear somebody else using jargon, I don't think it really registers if it's jargon that I'm familiar with. So I guess one thing I'm wondering is if, like, the gains we presume were the strides we're making for using jargon are being totally undermined by all the potential for, you know, broader engagement by not using jargon. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I said that quite right, but this idea that maybe all of our language should be simplified jargon, to a certain extent. Yeah, I mean, I guess to me, jargon feels a little bit like an accent. Like I've got a British friend, Stephen, who <laughs> he tells me I have an accent, but I don't hear mine. I only hear his. How, how, how do you think, I mean, is there a way to identify ourselves to like clue ourselves in to to train our brains to recognize when we're in jargon mode as opposed to accessible mode? Well, so I study communication and in particular I study how to use communication strategically. 
So my answer is always going to be yes. We could always, I, you know, I, in all my classes, I teach about reflecting on our messages and trying to tailor them for your audience and communicate more effectively. And when you're ineffective, trying to think why that was the case. And so, yeah, I think being aware and self-conscious, ultimately, you could really change how you communicate with people. I think it's definitely changeable. You know, we live in a world in which people can put themselves, and I think often put themselves, although unintentionally, into filter bubbles where they're only Mm -hmm. hearing from people who have similar interests and ideas. It seems like those are the same conditions that create jargon. And we we do see this effect where people from different social structures and strata talk very differently from one another. So I guess what I'm asking is, when you've looked at science and political jargon, is, is what you've found there applicable to, I guess, what might be called social jargon as well? Are, are we inadvertently keeping people out by speaking in ways that aren't accessible? I think so. I think that's a really human reaction to if you're not sure you belong, you're looking for cues that signal belonging and jargon could be one such cue that either makes us feel invited or not invited into a conversation. And I think some of our most natural biological instincts are to relate to other people. So I think an argument could be made that social jargons just as socially problematic as science jargon could be scientifically problematic. You don't just study jargon. You also research rules that govern behavior in groups, and and you also research (laughs) how people set up the ways in which a subject will be discussed, and and a whole bunch of other stuff. When you study communication, and given that Mm -hmm. communication is such a big part of our existence— is it really hard not to get distracted by all the really interesting research questions that are out there? Sometimes. Sometimes it's distracting, but I, I do see these things as fundamentally related, right? I'm always interested in how people are processing information and how we could create messages that make this processing better. And you teach quite a bit. I'm wondering how your students play into that process as well. Do do you end up seeing things in the way that you're communicating with them and they're communicating with you and everybody's communicating with each other that impact your thoughts about how you're going to direct your research and, and the questions you're going to ask? For sure. Well, so to the degree to which my research is interested in making concepts simpler, I mean, I practice these skills every time I lecture to, you know, a general communication course of 400 students, and I need to tell them, like, this is what communication is, so you could go home and tell your parents. So I'm always cognizant of what it is I'm saying and if I'm saying things in the most straightforward or accessible way. So you know, the degree to which I get feedback from students and they tell me, oh, have you ever thought about it this way is super interesting. Also, with all the new media stuff, they're just so on top of that, that that gives me a lot of insight into my blind spots and what people are doing now and how maybe new behaviors confirm old behaviors or don't confirm old behaviors in really interesting ways. 
what's the next step in this research for you? You mentioned that there was a couple of other study topics. Where do you want to take this research in the future past that? That's a great question. So if I go back to what made me interested in this topic, which was me personally feeling alienated from the political process, I think what I'd like to do is figure out a little bit more about what we could do with messages to engage disengaged populations. And I think my work has started with, like, using simpler language, but it was just a basic experiment test on college students or the general population. But I think I could be a little bit more specific about strategically how I could help invite groups of people that I know are currently not participating in a domain and figure out ways to kind of target these groups and pull them in more specifically. So continuing to dig into these processes and use it for what I think could be a social good would be my dream goal. Will you let us know if you come upon some findings that are particular to getting even more people to listen to public radio? (laughs) I certainly will. I, I certainly will. That's Hillary Shulman. Her study on jargon as a barrier to effective communication was recently published in the journal Public Understanding of Science. Hillary Shulman, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Friday at 2 p.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Naomi Ward. Our associate producer is Mia Dora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.